Mark chapter 6, the first six verses, Mark 6, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Father, we come before you again, as we do each and every Lord's Day, asking for the same thing. And that is that you, Holy Spirit, will grant us understanding, convict us, restore us, build us up by way of your word, and enable me in your grace to communicate that word by the power and authority of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Deadly danger of familiarity uh, is no less dangerous for us than it was for them. Uh, We're making our way very carefully and deliberately through the Gospel of Mark. Um, Structured as it is in a way that unfolds and unveils the identity of who Jesus is. Mark's goal is to unveil Jesus as the Christ, Son of God. Now we've witnessed events that are, that are layered one upon another, sandwiched together. Scholars actually refer to that as a Markan sandwich. It's a scholarly phrase for you. Uh, We've referred to it as um, pictures within a picture. One large portrait made up of of numerous little pictures. It's those modern-day photos. You look at it from a distance, and you see the face of someone. You get really close. You look in, and it's made up of hundreds and hundreds of of, of little um, tiny pixels. Stand back, and you get the bigger picture. This is what we see in Mark's gospel. Picture after picture. Of, of his glorious work, his powerful words, and you, you step back and you get the grander picture. He is who he claimed to be. Now, at the end of chapter 4 and in through chapter 5, um, features closely related pictures on the role of faith, the role of faith, uh, the substance of which is Jesus himself. We've seen faith exhibited that turned to Jesus Christ for answers. So we have seen believers spattered here and there, thus far in Mark's account. 
Now, as we enter into chapter 6, Mark moves in this very brief passage to focus in on the issue of unbelief. Unbelief. And that is, most, more specifically, the wonder and amazement of unbelief. Now, at the end of chapter 5, the, the general response to the crowds there in Galilee is summed up in verse 42. Notice, uh, immediately they were overcome with amazement, including those who laughed at Jesus in verse 40. And that was in response to the resurrection of Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were amazed. Before he rose, he, he raised her up. They laughed. He put them out. And thus far, uh, you know, the general synopsis of how Jesus was received throughout Galilee is with amazement. Astonishment. The, the primary response to Jesus was one of curiosity and astonishment. Over and over again, they're curious, and they're, they're astonished, and they marvel. But curiosity and astonishment does not equal repentance and faith. Therefore, it does not equal salvation. You can be astonished about Jesus, minus repentance and faith. See, the majority see in Jesus as we read these accounts, nothing more than someone who's come to alleviate their suffering and meet their immediate needs. That's how they see him. Now, you would think that those who heard Jesus preach and those who witnessed his miraculous power would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus just as he commanded them to do. Sadly, that's not the case. Now, It's Jesus who marvels. Jesus is now the one who's astonished. He's astonished at the depth of unbelief as shown through the people in his own hometown. This is the Lord who spoke the universe into existence. And creatures that dwell on the bottom of the ocean, miles down. He created them. And he's astonished? You know, the greatest tragedy of man is to hear the truth of Jesus Christ and reject it. The greatest tragedy of man. For someone to hear the truth as regards his person, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, sit under that truth and then reject that truth. Rejecting the truth that he is God's solitary means of salvation. You reject that truth, you're rejecting him. Regardless of how astonished and emotional you get with the name Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth, beloved. There is no grace apart from his truth. People want to reject the gospel as a whole, or they might not like aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're all chummy with Jesus. You reject his truth, you reject him. 
Grace and truth are inseparably woven together. You cannot have his grace apart from his truth. Note that. To reject his truth is to reject his grace. To receive his truth is to receive his grace. Numerous times Jesus gave the warning, believe in me or what? Perish. For he is the embodiment of grace and truth. In John 8, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There is no greater sin than gospel grace unbelief. Unbelief hears the truth, but refuses to receive the truth as absolute truth. Unbelief hardens the heart. Unbelief insults the Holy Spirit. Now, there are, of course, differing degrees of unbelief, the greatest of which is to have the greatest exposure to or the greatest presentation of that truth and then intentionally, deliberately reject and refuse the full knowledge of the truth. A degree of unbelief over which Jesus, verse 6, marveled. In verse 1, he went away from there. We're going to work our way through the account. Look at this tragedy. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Okay, here we begin. Now, the there of away from there is Capernaum. Okay, that was Jesus' home base um, for ministry. That was his headquarters, if you will. We have spent some time there. We've been there since chapter 1. We have been in Capernaum, the northwest shores of Galilee, for the most part. For the most part. That's where we've been. We've been camped there. It was there that Jesus showed the greatest displays of miraculous power. He performed most of them there. And yet, don't miss this, and yet Jesus would pronounce a lasting curse upon Capernaum. Because of the greatest exposure of the truth and their rejection of the truth as a whole, as a community. Look what he said in Matthew 11, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's a gloomy picture. That's the tragedy of missing one's opportunity of God's grace and Truth. That's the door of opportunity slamming shut. And it's a vivid reminder, beloved, that the day of opportunity we have with God can pass pronouncing 
hardness of heart from one from which one may never escape. That's the picture. Okay? So here then, operating on a divine schedule, Jesus departs from there. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, let me say this. Jesus is not visiting here for old time's sake, like we do. I just, every June I go visit for old time's sake. I see my mama and my papa. I love my mama and my papa. And with everyone else I see there, it's for old time's sake. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus has already made clear the primary purpose of his ministry, and that is to preach and teach. Chapter 1, verse 38. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out, to preach. Preachers need to preach. Great shepherd. We're under shepherds. Preach. So from the there of Capernaum, he moves about 20 miles or so southwest to the little village of Nazareth. And by the way, that's how he's known, isn't it? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth uh, at this time is about 60 acres total um, on a rocky hillside. Most historians estimate the population of Nazareth to be about around 500. So obscure... It's not, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth. This is a place we might say that, you know, is out in the sticks. It's out in the boonies. It was actually a place that was scorned upon. You remember that? John chapter 1. When uh, Philip found Nathaniel, he said, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Mar- note that. Son of Joseph. Note that for later. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You, come up, you ever come from a place that suffers a lot of scorn? You know, you have somebody from, Well, I'm from Los Angeles. Or, you know, I'm from, I'm from, the New, from New York City. Where are you from? And then you name your town. It's like, oh, <laughs> that's a no-name place. This is where Joseph and Larry, uh, Mary lived. Joseph and Larry. Joseph and Mary lived. You try this sometime every week. <laughs> it's easy for me to say. This is where Joseph and Mary lived. This is where they returned after their trip to Egypt, when they fled to Egypt according to God's divine plan and timetable, for Jesus to escape the slaughter in Bethlehem. This is where Jesus spent most of his 30 years, right here, Nazareth. So here, our Lord returns one last time. This is his last visit. And let me tell you, if you grow up somewhere for 30 years in a town of 500, you know everybody, and everybody knows you. Here's our Lord. These are the people who are most familiar with him. This is his hometown, which literally means fatherland. Here he is. 
He enters into his town, into his hometown. Here it is. His, his, he enters it. His, fo- his disciples follow him. That's what disciples do. They follow their master. Now, his fame has already preceded him. His fame has gone out throughout the land. They've read all the newspaper clippings about Jesus and his power and his teaching, the astonishment. And they would have wondered, you know, what, what, what has happened to this hometown boy? These are just people. So imagine he enters town. He, he's passing by people he knows. He's walking past things that he built, ox carts, homes that he either built or repaired. He's touched these things. He's made things. And then he passes by the synagogue that he would have attended for the majority of those 30 years. And it's in that synagogue, it's there on the following Sabbath, after his arrival, seventh day, Saturday, he went in and he taught. Here he is, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? That's the tone. Notice he enters in to teach. Comes from a word from which we get didactic. To instruct with the aim of shaping the will. See, Jesus, he's the expositor of expositors. He's teaching. And immediately they experience his wisdom, his authority. They're astonished, which means they were flattened out. We would say today, he blew their minds. They were blown away. Place is packed. He teaches, he preaches. You know, Jesus' teaching was always provocative. Moving people in one of two directions. Period. They were affected in one way or another as he brings the double-edged sword. He is the sword. He's the word. And he brings it. Here he is, bringing it. See, the primary, the primary cause of their astonishment is not the preaching content, really, but it is the discontinuity between what they know about Jesus having watched him grow up, and here, as they observe truth expounded, exposited, and explained, and they're just struck out of their senses. This makes no sense. Yeah, they've heard the reports. They've heard it. They've seen it for themselves. But this is not a receptiveness of Jesus in their hearts. What you just heard read is resistance to him that is growing within them. The tone is derogatory. this, This is a note of scorn. Where did this man, in other words, where did this guy get these things? We know this guy. And they are referring to his doctrine and teaching. In other words, they're saying, where did he of all people get this? We know him. Where did he get this wisdom? 
He, he couldn't have come up with it on, by himself. I mean, look, he's just like us. He's one of us. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? From the Greek, tectone. From where we derive technician. Jesus was a technician, meaning he was a skilled builder. With wood, stone, metal. This is what he did. He, he, he would have... He would have worked in everything from creating uh, a yoke for oxen to to furniture, uh, carts, things like that. So this is a trade he learned. He He was trained for this under Joseph right here in Nazareth. So then how is it that this man knows the scriptures? He's not trained for this, right? That's how they see him. See, they don't see the glory that that is broken through. That is breaking through. They don't see it. They don't see his kingdom power. They ignore the kingdom power. And they resort to this kind of scorn. And then in verse 3, is not this the carpenter? Notice, is this not the son of Mary? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Look, his family's here. Son of God? Son of man? Looks like the son of Mary to me. This isn't going to play in his hometown. He's not this Mary's son. Now listen to this. In John 1, we read, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Now, by this time, it's likely Joseph was dead, but still, it was proper Jewish etiquette to refer to someone as his father's boy. This is the polite thing to do. This is what you would do. So, by calling him Mary's son, they're casting doubt as to who perhaps the father really is. slandering Jesus for what they've come to believe to be an illegitimate birth. You remember in John 8, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, let me tell you what you all are. You're of your your father, the devil. Remember that? And then how they responded? They responded, oh yeah, we were not born of fornication. Remember that? That's a slander because Joseph was not the father of Mary's first baby. Jesus was an illegitimate son in their mind, so that's what they mean when they say, we were not born of fornication. Hmm, this this is Mary's son, right? So Nazareth's resistance to Jesus has some kind of social dynamic attached to it here. Okay, he's the builder, so he would have been valued, no doubt, over the years for fixing stuff, for building things. And you know he did quality work, right? It's like the woodwork in here. This is, it's just quality. Quality. These were not genuine questions, friends. Where does he get this? Where does he get this power? No. 
These are questions of resistance, unbelief, and denial of who he is. You know what it's like when someone raises questions with you and they're loaded questions? They're not, they're not real legitimate questions. So here, Jesus' amazing preaching, his change of demeanor, it's totally different from what they knew as he rolls in now. He has a band of disciples following him. There have been reports of all kinds of miracles by way of his hands. And it only made the people resentful and cynical of Jesus, of Nazareth. Who's he to come back as rabbi and teach us? Can you imagine this? Imagine it. See, Jesus' preaching had a certain method to it. Preacher of preachers. If you read his preaching, if you read the accounts, he usually states the truth and then he illustrates the truth and then he applies the truth and it strikes you right between the eyes. It punches you in the gut. Amen? So here, out out, out of the ploys of unbelief, they do what most people do. You assault the messenger. You don't like the message? Launch an attack on him. Launch an ad hominem attack upon him. You, you, you attempt to diminish the person. This is what they do. Classic. We all do this. Do we not do this? Are we not guilty of this? You don't like the message? Yeah. Verse 3b, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Scandalizo, scandalon. Scandalon was like a rock or a stone that you would trip over. 1 Corinthians 1, same word, where the gospel's a stumbling block, a scandalon to the Jews. Look at Romans 9.33, or just listen to it, I don't have it. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him, that rock, will not be put to shame. I mean, put to the blush, to be shamed down, to be disgraced. That's why we sung, Lord of our shame. Because back in the garden, what did God cover? The shame of Adam and Eve. He covers our shame. You don't believe in him, you'll be put to shame. frightful. Now let me say this. Some argue that this incident is identical to the one recorded in Luke 4. Okay, where where Jesus goes in and his text is Isaiah 61. He reads from the text. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they eventually try to push him out and push him over a cliff. Remember that? This is more likely a return visit. Again, grace on display. So it's about a year later. So here he has his disciples with him, and he's about to teach them a lesson about rejection. About rejection. So this, the scene, this one, is immediately set before they're being sent out two by two. 
And if you notice in verse 11, he alludes to this. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. You know, Dr. Stephen Lawson, who's preached here before, when he was in a church in Mobile, Alabama, the congregation hated him, the majority of them, because they didn't like the message. So they squeezed him out. So all the news people in town were there. He got up and he preached. He preached right where he was. He stepped down off the pulpit and made his way down. Individuals pop up. Maybe about 100 of them. Very large church, very large. He walks out, 100 people follow him out, gets in his car, takes off, has the driver stop, backs up, gets out, takes off his shoes, clanks them together, and drives away. That's what Jesus said to do. He's setting the stage for their rejection that the disciples are going to experience because of him. This is part of their preparation. So he's going to send them out on their first trial run. And remember this, beloved. Jesus and all who bear his name, all who bear his gospel, are unwelcome guests to those who do not believe the gospel. We were reminded last time that there is no one, there is no thing more polarizing than Jesus Christ. There is no one who is more divisive than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no doctrine more divisive than the sound biblical doctrine of Christ. It divides. He divides. Therefore, his reception will be your reception. His rejection will be your rejection. So he's preparing his boys not to be surprised. They're going to see it firsthand. They are seeing it firsthand. Now, those who see Jesus as Lord, those who see Jesus as King and hear his teaching and receive his teaching, in that case, there's no one who's more unifying than Jesus. In that case, there's no doctrine more unites people together than the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's the happy side. They took offense at him. Remember how Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant, this coming one, the Lord Jesus Christ? He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You know, it's one thing to be rejected by strangers when you preach the gospel. It's not too much of a sting, maybe a little bit. But when, when, when you're rejected by those with whom you've been most intimate, it stings. Verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not with, without honor except in his own town and among his relatives and his own household. See, it's always the guy who's traveled the farthest at conferences who's viewed as the specialist. I taught at a men's conference a couple weeks ago, and there they called me sir. I was blown away in the Q&A. Sir, I come back here, and you all call me dude. (laughs) 
But the point is there, you're viewed as something special. Nothing special. But this is Jesus. And notice, a prophet is not without honor except in his home, town, and among his relatives, and here, his own household. This is Jesus, Lord of glory. And here we see the deadly danger of familiarity as familiarity, one of our Proverbs, breeds contempt. Be careful how you hear. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 4? Be careful how you hear. All of us. So they write off the message because of the familiarity they have with the messenger. Classic case of undervaluing the familiar. You know, it is possible to be so, listen to this, Christians, listen to this. It is possible to be so familiar with the truth that we begin to undervalue the truth that we hear over and over and over again when the scriptures say, repeat this over and over and over again. So familiar with the presentation of the truth that it actually begins to breed lethargy. It begins to breed a lukewarm heart. That's the danger. We must apply this. Notice now the tragic result. Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, this is, beloved, this is not as though Jesus lost his inherent power, okay? It's not as though he was unable to do these things because he's all of a sudden now bound by the will of man. That's not the case. We, I mean, we just studied four successive miracles, did we not? That displayed Jesus' absolute authority, over everything, the forces of nature, demonic domination, incurable disease, and death itself. So his power is not all of a sudden now not subject to the will of humanity. Mark is demonstrating for us here that Jesus is among those who do not believe and unbelief robbed them of blessing. So this is not a matter of power. This is a matter of purpose. What was the purpose of Jesus' miracles? To validate the truth he spoke. That's why the apostles were able for a time to do miracles because then those listeners would know who the true apostles were. Signs, miracles, and wonders of an apostle to validate their message. So this is more of a matter of of purpose and not power. If you reject the truth... There's no need for mighty works. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. Now remember, we're coming on the heels of chapter 5 which was all about what? Faith. Even, even faith like a mustard seed that Jesus recognized. Faith. That's what we've witnessed. 
And here, he, could, he, he marveled. He could not fathom the hardness of their hearts. I mean, it shocked him, beloved, as it should shock us. If this doesn't shock you, perhaps you become desensitized. Spiritually numbed. Spiritually neutered. Only twice do we read that Jesus, creator of the universe, marveled. Twice. That he wondered. He was astonished. First, look at Matthew 8, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and heal him. That's a good deal right there. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found Such faith. So there, Jesus marveled at faith. This is the only time in Scripture where Jesus is said to have marveled or was astonished at unbelief with a group of people because they had the greatest exposure to him of all people. The embodiment of grace and truth. This is a group of people unlike any group of people on the face of the earth. This is his hometown. This is his home church, if you will. And they took offense. It's really amazing, isn't it? Are you amazed? Jesus went. Jesus turns his back and he leaves never to come back again. You see, even what they had was taken from them. Chapter 4, what did Jesus say? As regards how you hear, Matthew cha- or Mark chapter 4, verse 25. Remember he says, pay attention to how you hear, how you listen. For the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus warned, he said this, do not give what is holy to the what? The dogs, scavengers. Don't give what is holy to the dogs. And he said, don't cast your pearls before pigs. Lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Don't give what is holy to the dogs. Don't cast precious pearls before pigs. It's a matter of discernment. That's the same chapter, Jesus, that everyone loves to quote. Judge not lest you be judged, for with what judgment you judge another, you yourself will be judged. Jesus is talking about hypocrisy. And he goes on a few verses later right here and teaching you how to make a right and proper judgment. Know who the dogs and hogs are and don't give what is precious to them, right? This is the ultimate disaster of unbelief that literally shuts a person off from God. Amazing. Because the hardened unbeliever 
hates the truth, and he cuts himself off from the sacred blessing of God. This is the human part of it. This is the human side of it. They are followers of Satan. They're followers of the kingdom of darkness. This is what we've been delivered from, beloved, according to his grace. We were of the kingdom of darkness. We were dead. Ephesians 2, in our trespasses and sins. But God, he made us alive. Glad for that? Oh, amen. Glad for that. So glad for that. I was weeping last night, literally weeping like a baby because of something that very good happened. It was a text I was reading about someone who it's very obvious God's working in their life, and I'm blown away because it's specific answers to my prayers, which made me think of one of you here who are in a kind of situation that's difficult, and for you, I wept. Wept. Because of this truth, of this ultimate disaster, and that it takes the supernatural power of God to be delivered from this place. Hardened unbelief. Amazing. What about you? Question. Christian. No, non-Christian. Who think you're a Christian. Have you been so exposed to the truth that you're so familiar with the truth that you've become detached from the truth? Maybe you are a Christian. Your attendance is nothing more than superficial indifference. The word of God rolls off your back, off of you like water off a duck. It just rolls off, just boom, right off your forehead. Is that you? Perhaps you have this approach when you enter in. Go ahead and impress me. Show me something. Is that you? Perhaps you listen in an attempt to lay charge against the messenger. You're just waiting for him to say something. Is that you? There are those of you that have experienced growing up in a sound Christian home. The privilege, the privilege with a capital P of believing parents, and you remain in unbelief. That's astonishing. You experience the blessing of sitting under sound biblical doctrine, sound teaching. You come, you have a Bible, you regularly roll in, you regularly roll out. Most often astonished, that is like these people offended, and you remain in unbelief. Unbelief. Astonishing. If that's you. Some just come and go without believing in Christ. Without trusting in Christ alone. It's astonishing. Jesus marveled. Warning to the blind, warning to the hardened of heart, unbelief condemns the soul to hell for eternity. Period. See, last week's, you see how great expository preaching is? Last week was all encouragement. God honors just a little bittiest faith. He loves you. He cares for you. Those that are his, he'll never let you go. He'll never forsake you. He's in the boat with you in the storm, all this. Right? And now he goes to his hometown. 
There is an upswing here. Don't miss this. All unbelief engenders God's eternal judgment. Yet those who reject Jesus, the Christ, Son of God, the fullest exposure of God's plan in God's person, will receive the greater judgment in hell. Fact. What did Jesus say? It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the nastiest cities throughout history, than for those of you who reject my son. In all that you've seen, all that you've heard, your judgment will be greater. Don't throw that away. That's in the Bible. See, that, that's someone who loves Jesus but refuses that truth. Don't do that. My Jesus would never. Well, your Jesus ain't this Jesus. So why greater judgment? Because Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is God's final prophet sent from God, who is fully God and fully man, to preach his gospel, to die for the sins of his people. That's why. Raised to life everlasting. That's why it's greater judgment for those greater than those who were in Sodom and Gomorrah. They've been given more light. It's in him we see most clearly the wisdom of God, the work of God, the power of God. So to reject his message as preached by his messengers is to reject Jesus, who the message is about. So look, at here's Jesus. He's surrounded by people he grew up with. Relatives, you know relatives are there. Not only extended, but very close relatives, the ones with whom he shared the same home growing up. They're all there. Remember his own family? Go go, go back to uh, chapter 3. Remember when his family came to him trying to collar him and drag him back to Nazareth? Hey, look at chapter 3. When they heard about all this news, about his popularity, about his power, notice... When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They were saying he's out of his mind. Okay, so, shoot up to verse 31. When they finally arrive in town, Jesus is in a home teaching. Remember, the crowds are pressed in, they can't get near. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Forever who, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's his family. In John chapter 7, verse 5, remember? We're told there that even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, that's very encouraging. Here's the upswing. That's very encouraging because by the time that Mark writes this gospel, like 20 years after after this incident, Jesus' brothers are firmly established as disciples of Jesus, their Lord and Savior, and two of them pen epistles that bear their name, James and Jude. The point is that unbelief 
is not necessarily a permanent condition. It can change. It's a dangerous condition, and it must change. It must change. So his message is my message. If that's you, repent and believe if you don't believe. So Mark is showing us here, don't miss this. Mark is showing us that unbelief, again, unbelief is the context in which the gospel advances. Who's it saying? Unbelievers. Amen? We're encouraged with the gospel, yes. But Mark's original um, audience, his original readers, would have been greatly helped by this and these accounts because they, they lived at the crossroads of vibrant faith, theirs, and strident unbelief of the Roman culture that surrounded them. They're seeing their master rejected. And remember, they didn't believe out of thin air, friends. You don't believe out of thin air. Your, your belief and faith isn't being bolstered out of the thin air today. It's being bolstered by what? The word of God. The word of Christ. Romans 10. Look at it. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. From? God's wrath. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? Now, I understand, and we should all understand, there is no place more difficult to reach folks with the gospel than where you are most well-known. Amen? They've seen our sins. They know all of our shortcomings. They're way too familiar with us. And their impression of us inevitably colors the impression of the message. So if Nazareth, notice, if Nazareth's own prejudice is here in in their unbelief, were exposed when sinless Jesus preached the gospel? What do you think will happen to you when we share the gospel with those we know best? Well, number one, we should pray for wisdom. We, we need to pray for wisdom as we approach those that we know and are mo- most familiar with as we speak the truth and speak it in a right and proper way. Yet, at the same time, we should also pray that God will send other messengers of the gospel to them. Amen? That's a habit of mine. People I love who aren't saved, Lord, send, send someone. that they'll think that I set it up, but they'll know it's impossible that I set it up, (laughs) right? They'll think, man, John must have done this. He set this up. Wait a minute, it's impossible that he did. And And then you just see just the power of God and his providence. Amazing. So not only do we pray that, we also then want to make ourselves available to other homes where we know certain people's message is not welcome, and then we'll be willing to go in and declare the same message. Amen? A little application. Okay, so let me close with this. For believers. God has given us texts like this to remind us, beloved, 
day by day that we must fuel our faith. Fuel our faith. Faith is trusting belief in God's word. That's what faith is. It's trusting belief in the word of God. And God says, even if it's mustard seed faith, he recognizes it. He sees it. He honors it. We saw it last week. So to say, without our earnest attention to our faith, that is trusting our trusting faith in God's word, everything will start to weaken. Everything will begin to break down, including your own walk with the Lord. That goes for all of us. That's what will happen. And I'm not just talking, look, we're not talking about saving faith. We met with the deacons and elders yesterday. It's more than just saving. We need to remember our saving faith. But, but here, this is, this is referring to thriving faith. That's what I'm talking about as far as application does. A thriving faith. Trusting belief in the word of God as I walk in fellowship with God through Christ. So when we hear Christ's word to follow him, when we hear Christ's word to trust him, that must be combined with faith. Trust. Trusting belief in what it is he says day by day, or you will become very weak. Amen? That's why he gives us these texts. It should build us up. So trusting belief in the promises of God, in Christ, the scripture says, find their yes and amen in in him, Jesus. So, may this truth be potent within us. May this truth remain potent within us. In our hearts. May this truth prompt our souls. May this truth impact our souls. May this truth excite us. Amen? If you're not excited about the truth, there's no one here going to condemn you. If you're not excited about the truth that just rolls off you, where do you need to go? The source. Tell God. Admit it. He knows. Lord, your truth is, really doesn't excite me anymore. I've become kind of callous to it. You know what? I'm lukewarm as regards your truth. Go to him. Because only he can renew by the spirit your faith. Amen? May we not be indifferent to it. And may he not be shocked by our unbelief. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, not even his own hometown. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but were born of God. Rest in that. Love that. Be excited about that. And go out and walk in that. Amen?